0: in the territory known as California. The gold rush is on, and a handful of small mining towns are at the center of the action. Would-be miners, 49ers they're called, are flooding in seeking their fortune. So many, in fact, that the population influx would accelerate the process for California to become a state. These mining towns quickly went from sprawling campsites to lawless hotbeds with saloons, brothels, and gambling halls setting up shop. For prospectors, life was hard and dangerous. Only a few would end up making a fortune, but there was one group of individuals that did strike it rich, the merchants. These early entrepreneurs recognized a large and underserved market, moving quickly to supply goods and services to the miners, the merchants weren't mining for gold, but they were richly rewarded for seizing an opportunity that ultimately came with less risk and higher reward. One man, for example, couldn't sell enough waist-high overalls to miners. His name, Levi Strauss. Another named Sam Brannon sold prospecting equipment and became California's first millionaire. The merchant's massive success spurred the transition to an economic boom in America. It also led Mark Twain to observe, when everyone is looking for gold, it's a good time to be in the pick and shovel business. That lesson still resonates. Today, California looks closer to the epicenter of an even bigger event. The transition to a net zero economy. The process of cutting greenhouse gas emissions is a massive endeavor. While firms around the world rush to meet regulatory requirements and address market pressures, investors need to understand the potential risks and rewards of this transition to the environment and to their portfolio. Like the merchants of the California Gold Rush, can we find opportunities that lower our risk while increasing our returns? Can we find the pick and shovel businesses that will outperform in the years ahead? To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that entangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, we turn to three experts on the financial impacts of transitioning to a net-zero economy. Tom Steyer is a renowned investor and philanthropist and currently co-chair of Galvanize Climate Solutions. Dr. James Henderson is Director of Energy Transition Research at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And Brian Thomas is Managing Director of Prudential Private Capital, the private investment unit of PGM. As the world moves to decarbonize and cut emissions to avert future climate-related disasters, Investors are faced with important questions. What are the investment risks associated with the transition to net zero? Will the transition create opportunities? And how should we address these questions alongside conventional financial metrics? Tom Steyer starts with the bigger picture. Why should we care about cutting emissions?
1: We're living in a business environment where there is very inadequate measurement and basically no cost to polluting. You want to emit carbon, there is no cost and there's really no measurement of it. So there can't be a cost until there's measurement. How do you charge for it? And how do you pay for sequestration? Can't be done. So the real question here is, is it essential that we in fact get to New Zero? It actually is. I mean, you look around the world today, you see the news from the natural world, whether that's in Pakistan or China or Europe or the Western United States or Peru, it's all over the world. You say, is it essential that we preserve a safe and healthy natural world for the human beings who live on this planet? It's absolutely essential. And then every following question starts with that premise that we have to get there. So when you think about where people are in their journey as a country or as a company. You have to start with the premise that we need a safe place on this planet for human beings. While it's hard to dispute that we all need a safe planet, the
0: path to getting there is not so clear. As PJM's Brian Thomas knows, it will take time to cut our consumption of traditional sources of energy.
2: Conventional energy is something we're all aspiring to find ways to diversify from, minimize our reliance upon. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it's an absolute essential need. It's not quite water. It's not quite food, but it ranks right up there in terms of its importance, not only to just the quality of global life, but just, you know, existence in general. It's important to realize that 80% of energy consumption in the globe right now consists of conventional energy. That's not going to be going away anytime soon. I think what we have to do is we have to think about um, what we do to reduce the demand equation for it. Perhaps that's investments in uh, renewable resources and technologies, but also in modification of human behavior. Because until we do that, the need will not go away.
0: Consumption of traditional energy sources varies considerably across the world. James Henderson of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies sees a shift in consumption from the developed countries to the developing or emerging countries.
3: Overall, hydrocarbon consumption has kind of plateaued, but if you look at the individual hydrocarbons, coal is the one under the most pressure, and that's particularly in the developed world, where coal use, particularly in power generation, has been in decline, but overall, because coal is the dirtiest of the hydrocarbons, there's kind of been a move away from it. That's not so true in the developing world where there are many indigenous coal resources, particularly in countries like China and India. So there's an inclination to use them because they're cheap. Oil demand overall continues to rise where consumers continue to purchase new vehicles, whether they be two-wheeler, three-wheeler, or, or four-wheelers. And then finally, you've got natural gas. And there with it that being the cleanest of the hydrocarbons in as much as it emits less CO2 when burnt, we've seen growth both in the developed and the developing world, mainly because uh, in the power generation sector, uh, gas has come in to replace coal, if you like the cleaner hydrocarbon for a dirtier one, and in the developing world because that's been going on, but also there's been economic growth as well. But when it comes to carbon
0: emissions, the devil's in the details. To clear the path to a net zero economy, we really need a reliable framework for measuring and reporting emissions.
1: Well, I think that the truism, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, absolutely applies to solving our climate crisis. So it is really important that we get scope three, and scope three just means, you know, all the way down through your supply chain, that you know what the carbon footprint is of the shirt you're wearing, because that is the information that everybody needs. That's the information that your employees need to know whether you're do, whether they wanna work at your company, your customers need to know whether they wanna, in fact, buy that shirt that the government needs, because if we're as a country trying to get to net zero, which we've sworn we are, then we need to know wh- where is the emission, And where does the emission need to go?
0: It's crucial to know at a very granular level how people are producing goods and services around the world. Full and accurate measurement goes beyond the emissions a company generates directly in delivering a product or service to the customer.
3: Here's James. So reporting all the way along the value chain, which needs to be done with some independent verification, and that verification word is critical as well, because it's one thing a company saying what it thinks it's done. It's another thing having independent verification. And we think that regulators are going to be focused on this and that over time, taxes are going to be applied. Certainly, the plan in the EU is to start imposing costs for greenhouse gas emissions for goods arriving in the EU. Gradually, over not on all sectors at once, gradually. But as soon as the EU starts to do that, their hope is that they will then essentially negotiate with other regions of the world to start imposing carbon taxes there as well. I think it's going to be important for investors to see which companies are, are taking the lead here, but also really more importantly, how regulators are going to start insisting on this reporting and this verification. And because if I think the threat is that if companies don't do this properly, then regulators will just impose blankets sort of taxes uh, assuming the worst if you like
0: in other words it's incredibly important for investors to know which companies are taking this seriously and what their time scale looks like so what does this all mean for investors with global portfolios how should we evaluate firms in terms of their progress and ability to transition to net zero emissions
1: when you're looking at a business and asking, does it have a sustainable advantage? Does it have a moat that basically protects its growth going forward and giving giving it the ability to have significant profit margins? You really have to start with the question is, what problem are you solving for the customer? And I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's the product market fit with the customer that gives you the advantage, And if you can have something that is differential, it's sustainable. Because in every one of these questions, if you start with the science, you can come to an answer that doesn't make sense in the real world. Because it may in fact work, but it doesn't mean that the customer wants it. So what we're talking about here is not necessarily coming up with something in the lab that works. We're talking about something that works, that gets deployed at scale, and continues to be a growing and profitable business. Every company ultimately is gonna be involved in this just the way every company ultimately has ended up being involved in the internet and the online world. That isn't a special part of business, that's just part of business and so is this. It really is understanding what the problem is you're solving for your customer and then relentlessly answering that problem better, cheaper, faster. Is that really any different
0: from conventional investing? Brian believes the fundamentals of investing
2: remain the same, more or less. It's identify the risks of investing, structure away the risks you don't want to assume, and make sure you get paid properly for the risks you take on as a consequence of your investment. I think that's where CIOs have a very um, difficult task, particularly when they're trying to find long-term investments As we always say, don't outdrive your headlights in a very opaque future, it's very difficult to make long term capital commitments. And when you're thinking about infrastructure or energy infrastructure in particular, that becomes uh, very, very challenging in large part because, again, so much of energy activity of the profitability or the viability of sector also requires, you know, alignment with public sentiment and political willpower.
0: And where should long term investors look for opportunities?
2: The opportunities for investment during this transition period will really kind of focus on three areas in general. You know, One, obviously, will be renewable energy and technologies in support of renewable energy. The other would be into the manufacturing industries that supply the equipment that ultimately is used for energy transition. And certainly that is a, a global opportunity as much as it is a focus within Europe and, and United States. But then also, as this unfolds, there will be considerable opportunities to continue to invest in conventional energy, which again, for the next 20 to 30 years is going to remain a very important source of energy for the broader global economy. The question is not whether we should or shouldn't invest in it, it's how do we deploy capital in a manner that makes those companies that we choose to invest in a best in class to reflect well on the institutions that invest in them and manage to maintain a, a, an attractive profile as it relates to how they manage and perform in a local economy, as well as, as for the benefit of, of our standard. But that doesn't rule out more
0: tactical or shorter-term opportunities, even for investors with a longer horizon.
3: Here's James on that. The transition has created some near-term opportunities for, if you like, traditional energy producers mainly because the move from an energy system that we've been using for the past 150 years to a brand new energy system is creating volatility around mismatches of our ability to supply energy on a consistent basis and our need to consume it. And that's particularly true because renewables have uh, the inherent factor that they are intermittent. And so, therefore, you kind of need a, a backup source of energy, and that backup source of energy obviously could be nuclear or hydro, but often is uh, hydrocarbon-based. So you get this kind of inherent volatility around the intermittency of renewables, and then you get further volatility around levels of investment that have been put in in anticipation of, of future demand, and if you like, uh, a certain reluctance for producers to invest ahead of an energy transition, which is pretty uncertain, means that there also can be mismatches of supply and demand around the hydrocarbons themselves. So that leads to to price volatility, which clearly creates opportunity. Beyond sectors, certain companies will seek to demonstrate their competitive advantages around how they manage emissions. Competitive advantage can be created by, for example, producing low carbon intensity Hydrocarbon production. So, if the emissions in your production process are lower than somebody else's emissions, if you flare less natural gas, if the pipes that you're using leak less, if your wells are more efficient, then you potentially will be able to offer your oil, natural gas, I mean, probably not coal, with a lower carbon intensity tag, which might allow you to generate some kind of premium price. Also, There are opportunities around carbon offsets, carbon capture, direct carbon removal, which aren't necessarily specific opportunities for the oil and gas industry, but certainly are related to the oil and gas industry. Particularly, I'm thinking of carbon capture and storage. James
0: points to one country in particular
3: as an example for potential opportunities. We've already seen a country like Norway, for example, starting to offer the uh, their old oil and natural gas fields for carbon storage and, and a sort of, in a sense starting to set up a new value chain around that opportunity with not only in Norway, but with neighboring countries as well. So I think there are these potential opportunities around removing the carbon from the hydrocarbons that have been burnt. Um, I mean, that opportunity will only exist, of course, while hydrocarbons are still being consumed. But that looks like it's going to be for, for quite some time.
0: Firms around the world continue to develop innovative solutions to reduce or offset carbon emissions. But, as Brian says, even these efforts come with
2: potential risk. Calling something renewable doesn't eliminate the risks associated with the investment. I think what many institutional investors will find is that the investment in wind and solar and related projects particularly as we go further abroad outside of you know OECD oriented regions becomes more acute again because many of those investments rely on public support government support tax support and so as a consequence your ability to define the full landscape of risks is going to be a function of your familiarity and understanding of the legal and political regimes in which you're operating in. You know, in in many developing areas, we always found that there's two ways to lose money, right? You can lose money the old-fashioned way by just doing a bad deal. And sometimes you can lose money by also doing too good of a deal. And then the local political factions decide they want to rechange the rules of the games because you did better than they thought you were when they invited you in. The key is uh, making sure that you align yourself not only with people that understand the the business and uh, from a professional standpoint but on a local level finding individuals to align yourself that can help you navigate the vagaries of investing abroad outside of areas that you're otherwise familiar with but ultimately I think the key is not to become you know intoxicated by the new opportunity set to deploy capital in a new area where f- people are are fearing to tread while there may be risk in new
0: endeavors there's also risk in the familiar As Tom Steyer knows, there is no single transition recipe for investors.
1: If you transition a business that's a significant emitter into one that fits into the new world, where we all have to solve this crisis together, then that will be a profitable investment and a good company. And if you end up with a huge stranded asset that would have been worth a lot of money in 1950, maybe it's not gonna be worth any money in 2050.
0: Which brings us back to those 49ers during the California Gold Rush. As we navigate the current landscape, Brian reminds us of the lesson from the Old West. The most attractive opportunities sometimes lie off the beaten path.
2: At the end of the day, the only people who made money were the people that sold food and clothing and shovels and equipment to the 49ers. There weren't many miners that actually made a lot of money. So perhaps maybe the best way to play this game is to focus on manufacturers that supply the industry as opposed to some of the individual projects themselves.
0: Particularly over the next few years, it's important for investors to understand where we are in the transition. There will be speed bumps ahead, and we can expect more supply and demand mismatches around the world.
3: We all know where we want to get to uh, at the end, which is a decarbonized energy system, which is powered increasingly by electricity, and that electricity increasingly generated by carbon-free sources. And so that's solar, wind, hydro, potentially more nuclear as well. But we're not there yet. Uh, and that system will also have to have a significant amount of storage available in it and smart grids available in order to manage the kind of balance of supply which is intermittent and demand which won't necessarily happen at the time the supply is available so we are currently in this in this shift and as a result of that there's a potential for significant mismatches between supply and demand utilities have always been categorized
0: as defensive stocks Will that fluctuate if the cost equation shifts during the
1: transition to net zero? So the other thing you have to ask yourself in these investments is, how capital intensive are they? How much money is it going to take? And so as you think about what is going to scale quickly, what is going to provide high margins and high return on invested capital, you have to think about capital intensity, both in terms of size, speed, and profitability.
0: Add to this risk of underinvestment, the practicalities of operational risks.
2: I think the the biggest risk is people try to oversimplify the problem, and there will always be a symbiotic relationship between renewable slash intermittent resources and ultimately conventional resources that provide support for electric energy demands when those intermittent resources aren't otherwise available. So, we've seen this in Texas, which became acute during uh, the winter storm Uri. We've seen it more recently in Europe. It becomes even more pronounced, obviously, due to conflict in that region as well. I think this is just something that as we focus on energy transition, particularly at a rapid pace, it's almost inevitable. There's a great author, Bacos who's written about the history of energy and energy transition. There is a natural inertia that normally plays out during great energy transition periods, where when we were going from biofuels and wood to coal and coal to oil and oil to natural gas and nuclear, That staging period is usually measured in decades, not years. And I think any um, anticipation that somehow this time it's different, that we will transition in a period of years, really doesn't appreciate the challenges that come with marshalling capital, building the infrastructure that supports an energy transition period, and deploying capital in a thoughtful manner that actually is able to invest and return capital in a manner that rewards the effort. Looking
0: ahead, there is good reason for optimism. Scientists are making progress in a number of research areas. When the International Panel on Climate Change recently released its report on the future of emissions and mitigation strategies and its forecasts of how we might reach net zero by 2050, it outlined some of the richest areas of research for advancing energy technology, starting
3: with carbon removal. So carbon capture, utilization storage, direct air capture, and all forms of carbon removal really are factored into many of their scenarios. And I think this is true of many transition scenarios that get us to net zero by 2050. So clearly, there's a rich vein of research that can go on there. Many of the technologies do exist. It's really a case of bringing costs down, scaling up, and making these things available at something like a commercial cost, not just for the developed world, but for the developing world as well. But
0: as James notes, there's more beyond carbon removal to pay attention to.
3: Batteries and other forms of storage, electricity storage, whether that be chemical storage, or other forms of electricity storage, is another huge area. And in tandem with that, the technology around smart grids, so making the consumer part of the integrated grid so that, for example, your electric car, the battery in your electric car will obviously be used to drive your electric car when you're using it, but when you're not using it, it'll be integrated with the grid and the grid can kind of turn and take electricity out of your car and send it to another consumer and then refill your battery in time for you to use the car again. So it's, it's, it's the kind of grids that allow that to happen, not just with electric cars, but with all the machines operating in your house and obviously in industrial plants as well. From a longer term
0: and potentially more speculative perspective, there's one big area to consider,
3: nuclear fusion nuclear fusion is the big hope this is the the fusion that goes on in the sun and essentially harnessing technology that can allow that process to be managed and controlled on earth then that will be absolutely transformational and then the last thing i'd mention is something a bit more current and that's expanding the light spectrum that solar panels can access so at the moment solar panels. Are sort of 20 to 30% efficient in terms of the light spectrum they can access. Technology is moving us gradually towards 50%. So anything that can be done to increase the efficiency of solar panels clearly can be beneficial as well. The transition to net zero emissions will present
0: challenges and opportunities across the financial markets.
2: CIOs are really going to have to make some difficult decisions on what represents the best long-term investment for their constituents. And some of that may actually require some difficult conversations as it relates to allocating capital to conventional energy resources in as much as they're looking for opportunities for renewables.
0: As we move forward through this massive transition, there will be some bumps in the road and uncertainty to navigate. But there is hope and clearly plenty of opportunities. As investors, we can decide whether to be the prospector looking for gold or the merchant selling picks and shovels. Thanks to our experts, Tom Steyer, Dr. James Henderson and Brian Thomas for guiding us on this journey. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor, when we'll explore the new dynamics of private markets and how firms are accessing capital. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review.
4: This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PJM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PJM's views. PJM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PJM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of m PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.